Well, good evening. It's good to be back together again this evening. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to continue to make our way through this book. We were in Daniel two weeks ago, and we heard some really good news. That good news was simply this, the God-man, Jesus the Messiah, will return to the earth and establish his kingdom that will never be vanquished, the kingdom that will have no end, and his saints will reign with him forever. That was great news, and as we finish chapter 7 together tonight, we're going to discover that Daniel was troubled by what led up to that good news. Daniel recorded and then wrote down for us that good news we reveled in, and then he wants more details about what led up to it. Let's read together the rest of Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One. The time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me. My face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself." Let's pray together. God, we come to your word this evening asking for help, asking for help to see what your word declares, asking help to understand its import for world history and for our own hearts. We pray that you would have your way with us, that you would do with your word what you intend as the great surgeon with a surgical scalpel able to divide joints and marrow, soul from spirit. God, we ask that you would do heart work in us. Let us think your thoughts after you. In Jesus' name, amen. We come this evening to a portion of Scripture that is filled with technical details about the end times. 
This portion of Scripture gives us further details of the great fourth beast. We've been looking at Daniel's four-beast vision, which from Daniel's vantage point was a futuristic portrayal of four successive kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans, and that last kingdom in two phases, the Roman Empire that was alive and well before the first century until about the fifth century A.D., and then a revived Roman Empire yet to come. Daniel is troubled by the vision leading up to the glorious return of Messiah to the earth. He is so troubled, in fact, that we see in the first section of this text, Daniel's distress. Look at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. The word for distressed here means to contract, to shrink down in bitter grief. Uh, Literally, his spirit was shrinking down in its sheath. And Daniel pictures his inner man in his body, something like a sword inside a scabbard, or, or maybe the snail recoiling inside its shell. This is a graphic depiction of internal turmoil. Daniel has been traumatized by everything he has seen in this vision. He says in verse 15, the visions in my head kept alarming me. Intensive verbs are used here to describe what's going on inside of Daniel. And you might think, but the last vision was a vision of ultimate victory. I mean, we saw the ancient of days giving the kingdom to one like a son of man. And and this God-man, the Messiah, is the one who is going to set everything right and vindicate his people and rule with righteousness and justice on the earth. He's going to destroy all those evil, rebellious kingdoms. Why so glum, Daniel? Why distressed? Well, if we put ourselves in Daniel's shoes, we we might imagine Daniel having read the detailed prophecies of those who had gone before him that told us that the people of Israel would be removed from their exile to Babylon after 70 years. That time is almost up by the time we get to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has seen the Babylonian empire come and go. He will see the successive empires of the Medo-Persians, and then who knows? Daniel doesn't know the time frame of these things. Will he see all four empires come and go, and then the restoration to the land and Messiah's glorious reign? Daniel knows the what, but not the when. Is it possible here that Daniel is looking forward to the blessings of God's righteous reign on the earth and yet is disturbed by all the turmoil which must come first. Jesus himself said, speaking of similar times, the end will come, there will be wars and rumors of wars and this is not yet the end. There's trouble coming before Christ's glorious kingdom. So Daniel gets an angelic summary. Look down at verse 16. I approached one of those who were standing by. Literally, I approached one of the standing ones. Who are these standing ones? Look back at verse 10. In the vision of the ancient of days, Daniel saw the thrones set up and God on his throne, a river of fire flowing out, and thousands upon thousands were standing before him. The New American Standard translates that as attending him. Those are those host of angelic beings ready at God's behest to do his bidding. And so Daniel turns to one of these angelic hosts and asks him, and the grammar here seems to indicate that he is asking him over and over again the truth of all this. 
And perhaps you would do the same thing. It's not totally unusual for a prophet to ask an angel, what did I just see? Daniel has seen this vision. He turns to one standing by and says, can you explain this? So Daniel was asking him. We find out that Daniel asks the angel Gabriel a similar question in chapter 9. He gets angelic interpretation in chapter 10. Zechariah asks for angelic interpretation. And John the Revelator in Revelation 17.7 also turns to an angel and asks for clarification about a vision. So there's nothing totally unusual here. It may be unusual to us. So the angel spoke and made known to Daniel the interpretation. Look at verse 17. These great beasts, four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. And here, the metaphor, the symbol, melts away into the reality. And we've talked about this before in the book of Daniel. The kingdom is often represented by the personage of the king. That was most true for Nebuchadnezzar. He really represented all that the greatness of Babylon was. And it will be equally greatly true for the last king of the revived Roman Empire. But these four kingdoms are represented by the four beasts. These four beasts were said to come, in verse 3, from the tumultuous sea of rebellious humanity. Again, that symbol gives way for the clarity here in this verse. These kingdoms are earthly. Notice what he said. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. Uh, These are not heavenly beings. These are men. These are men ruling empires. And notice what's said here. Uh, Verse 18 just gets right to the punchline. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And I love the brevity of this eschatological statement, this end times summary. Uh, What happens? Uh, Four empires will come and the saints win. That's it. It's really brief. Who are these saints? Who are the saints of the highest one? The saints simply means the set-apart ones. These are God's people. And the immediate referent of it in this time frame will be the persecuted, believing Jews during the time of the Antichrist. We'll detail that a little bit later this evening. It will also be the Gentiles who become followers of Christ along with those believing Jews. And the ones who survive what is called the Great Tribulation who survive on the earth, will be the ones who take possession physically, materially, of the kingdom. And this verb, to take possession here, indicates ownership and leadership and places of influence. That is, godly ones will be at the helm of world politics. And what a contrast this is to last 6,000 or so years of human history. How have politics gone so far? How has world governance gone so far? How have been man's attempts at ruling the world? We know Ephesians 2.2, the prince of the power of the air is the one at work in the sons of disobedience. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Satan is the god of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that Satan is a lion roaming the earth seeking whom he may devour. He's also, according to Revelation 12, the one who daily makes accusations against the saints in the throne room of heaven. For Satan to be called the God of this world and to be working behind all the sons of disobedience means that human governments have been at the behest of the God of this world in significant measure. 
They have not measured up to God's ideal for what man is supposed to be on the earth. The world has been in rebellion. Listen to what the contrast will be like from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 11.9 says, In that day they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh. And Revelation 20 tells us that Satan will be bound in the abyss for a thousand years so as not to, the, not to deceive the nations any longer. That day is coming. Notice the last phrase of verse 18. They will possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. That's how the New American Standard translates it. I might take a stab at it this way. Until forever and until perpetual forever. It is a compilation of forever words, a unique phrase found only here in the Old Testament. It's an emphatic way to declare that this fifth kingdom, Messiah's kingdom, will never be destroyed, there will never be an overthrow, it will have no end, it will never experience deterioration. This fifth kingdom will endure. It will even transcend the remaking of the universe into the eternal state. And again, notice in verse 18 how quickly the angel passes over all of human history to get to that punchline. The four beasts are four in number, four kings from the earth, but the saints win forever and ever. How would you like that for a summary of a football game? I guess if you're a Saints fan. But that's it. No storyline, no, no battles, no descriptions, no details. And have you noticed in your Bible, sometimes the descriptions of end times are really simple and really short, just succinct and victorious. And other times, the Bible gives lots of details. Daniel does not seem particularly satisfied by this Cliff Notes summary the angel is given. So in section 3 of this text, beginning in verse 19, Daniel details what he saw of the fourth beast vision. And he clearly is looking for an explanation of those details. He is still troubled. Look at verse 19. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron, its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. This intensive verb that Daniel uses, to know, he, he wants to really know the truth of all this. This is really pressing on Daniel's soul. This fourth beast, so different, so captivating, so compelling, so terrifying, it's not comparable to any of the kingdoms that went before, and it's not comparable to any known animal. Remember, the prior three kingdoms resembled animals that could be described by Daniel, but not this one. It's just terrifying, gruesome, trampling, devouring. It has iron teeth and bronze claws. The bronze claws here are a new detail that Daniel has brought out. We haven't seen this before, and bronze claws would be particularly lethal with the ability to shred anything in their way. So this beast is some sort of animal metalloid hybrid. It's not organic. Uh, you couldn't order a fourth beast sandwich at Whole Foods. This is terrifying. This thing is exceedingly dreadful, Daniel says. And what does it do? It, it devours, it crushes, it tramples. We looked at that in more detail in the four beast vision. Daniel now also wants to know about its ten horns. Look at verse 20. And the meaning of the ten horns which were on its head. What are these ten horns? First of all, a horn is a signal of strength. 
For an animal, it is the singular weapon, whether it is the, the one horn of a black rhino or the antlers on a caribou or a giant rack on a bull moose or the horns of a raging bull. The horn is the animal's power. It is its weaponized strength. And in the symbology, when the beast is an empire, the horn represents the personage that manifests the strength of that empire. It's the king who wields the weaponry, the king who orders the machinery, the king who commands the soldiers of war. It's the Napoleon, the Alexander the Great, or the Joseph Stalin. And then we see in verse 20 this other horn. Daniel wants to know the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and and the other horn which came up. We were introduced to this other horn back in verse 8. Look back there for a moment. While I was contemplating the horns, that is the ten horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. You remember that violent snatching out of three of those horns. Here in verse 20, we discover that before that little horn, before that other horn, three of the ten horns fell. And we're reminded that this little horn has eyes and a big mouth, and then becomes larger than others. Notice that, the the horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and it was larger in appearance than its associates. It started small, and it grew disproportionately and overpowered the others. Look at verse 21. I kept looking. Again, Daniel here is captivated. He cannot look away. And that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. This would be particularly hard for a man like Daniel to watch. God's precious ones losing. No match for this beast. This beast is waging war on God's saints and he is winning. He he has trampled anything and everything, but he is unleashing special fury on the people of God. Until, verse 22... Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Four simple statements in the original here. The Ancient of Days came, judgment was given, the time arrived, and saints possessed the kingdom. The grammar of the original is stark and bullet-pointed. It is arresting. This little horn, this fourth beast, the singular personage that becomes the emblem of the last vestige of the Roman Empire, has his day until God arrives and the tomfoolery is over. Judgment is given. There's no battle here, just divine vengeance, including a vindication of God's people. And the time has arrived One of the overarching themes of the entire book of Daniel is God's absolute sovereignty over all things, over the overarching purposes of history down to the minute details of history's unfolding. God is sovereign. And we see that in this little phrase, the time arrived. That is God's appointed time. The beast's power, the beast's rage, the beast's trampling of the earth ends no sooner and no later than God's time. And then the saints possess the kingdom, the fifth kingdom, the last kingdom. Daniel unfolds these further details 
And you can sense him pleading for explanation of them. And so the fourth section of this text is that angelic explanation beginning in verse 23. And here we get lots of technical details where the symbology is moved to the realities and we find out what happens in the end. Look at verse 23. Thus the angel said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, tread it down, and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten horns or ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. He will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings. We learn that this fourth beast is a fourth earthly kingdom. It's different from all that went before, and it devours all the earth, treads down the entirety of the earth, and crushes it. This is a depiction of worldwide domination and savage brutality. Whatever doesn't get in line gets absolutely crushed. And we saw the presage of that in the first iteration of the Roman Empire. When you read about Rome and you read about its veracity and tenacity, you read about Pax Romana or the peace of Rome, it was peace through superior firepower. You will submit and things will go well for you. That was the Roman way. And what the, what the first iteration of the Roman Empire was able to do in a region the last iteration will set eyes on the whole earth. The angel describes the ten horns as ten kings from her. We've already seen that this fourth beast represents Rome, but not Rome as we have seen it so far. This revival of the Roman Empire still to come, probably alluded to in Revelation 17.8, where uh, John the Revelator describes it this way, the beast that was is not and is about to come. And he says that twice in Revelation 17.8. That is perhaps a reference to the fact that this Roman Empire existed, doesn't exist as, uh, in, in, the, in our present time, and then will exist again in the future. Nothing, by the way, in the history of the Roman Empire in its first iteration matches these details. Notice here another Another horn, different from the others, comes up. What is this other? What is this other king in verse 24? He is one who will eliminate three kings, ostensibly to subdue the others, to solidify power. If he can convince the ten that he is stronger than them by eliminating the three, the other seven will submit to him, and he rules the world. This Horn, this little one, different from the other ten, is an individual king from the fourth beast, from the revived Roman Empire, and eventually comes to personify the beast. Look at verse 25. He will speak out against the Most High. He will wear down the saints of the highest one. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. This beast, this horn, this king, is called a beast in Revelation 13 and 17. And we're going to read some texts from Revelation in a moment. I want to give you six lines of argument that identify the little horn of Daniel's fourth beast with the beast in Revelation 13 and 17. 
Number one, beast terminology is used in both Daniel and Revelation. Number two, both oppose God and blaspheme him. Number three, both are said to have ten horns. Number four, both persecute the saints. Number five, both have power for three and a half years. And number six, both are destroyed at the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. This beast, this horn, this little king has some AKAs, some nicknames. He is called in 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. He is called in 1 John 2.18, the Antichrist. I want to read several texts that unfold more details about this man and his activities. And this is helpful. We could at one level be patient and wait to get to an unfolding verse by verse of 2 Thessalonians and the book of Revelation to put all of these together. But it may be some time until we get there. So we're going to sew some of these things together uh, this evening so that we get a picture of what Daniel is talking about. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. This is future to Daniel's perspective, future to John the Apostle's perspective as he writes in AD 95, and this is still yet future from our perspective. These things have not happened yet. Revelation 13, beginning at verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horn were ten diadems, on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet like those of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Do those animals sound familiar? <laughs> the amalgamation of those previous empires into this one. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints. And to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of Lamb, of the Lamb who has been slain. This is the beast. You heard those same themes we just read in Daniel 7. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This from the Apostle Paul. He writes, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come, it is not present, unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, 
who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And then finally, turn to Daniel chapter 11. In verse 36. Speaking of this same one, that king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. A lot of commonalities between those texts, and I know we didn't work through all of those details, but did you notice that God's sovereignty was in every single one of those? Things were given and given and given. That is a divine passive indicating God is sovereignly working all of, things, all of these things out according to his perfect plan, even in the worst era of human history. This Beast, this man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the Antichrist, the little horn, is the one opposed to God, driven by Satan with murderous enterprise. Pay attention to some of the details here in Daniel 7. The ten horns are ten kings that will arise. That is, ten kings at the same time. These are not successive rulers of Rome somehow throughout Roman history. This is a contemporaneous federation. Remember that three are subdued while the other seven stand. These are ten kings at the same time. This has never yet happened. Uh, nothing like this has happened in all of the Roman history up to this point. Listen to Revelation 17. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. They haven't received it yet in John's day, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour, and these have one purpose. They give their power and they give their authority to the beast. Again, these are future contemporaneous kings of a revived Roman Empire. And then this other will arise. He's different and he'll subdue the three. Carefully notice the timing of the emergence of the little horn. When does the little horn come up? After the Ten King Federation is already in place. In other words, after the Roman Empire is revived, after Roman, Rome 2.0 exists on the earth. The revived Roman Empire will have already formed when this little horn shows up. Do you know what that means practically for us? Don't go try to name the Antichrist. <laughs> 
Every attempt to identify the Antichrist or the beast on the scene of world politics has failed and will fail until he emerges from a revived Roman Empire. Don't try it. Look, the beast is not some supercomputer under the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. It's not Antiochus Epiphanes. It's not Adolf Hitler or Mikhail Gorbachev. I know he had that big red mark on his forehead. We all thought that he'd been raised from the dead, or maybe that's a confession. I thought that in high school. The Antichrist is not any of the medieval popes. There is the spirit of Antichrist that the Apostle John writes about that has gone all throughout church history. But the Antichrist, the man who is to come, this little horn, this king, is none of those. Furthermore, doing eschatology by reading your newspaper is a fool's errand. That's not where we get the truth about the end times. Look, I have a collection of books. And if you want to walk into my office and walk through the door, get behind my desk. They're in a secret enclave, right? You have to get behind my desk and look over the air duct, the vent of the air conditioning system, and there's a row of books above there. Those are the banned books. I don't like to burn them, but I don't like them on display either. And there's a section of those books on eschatology that follow every new Middle East conflict and every world crisis where the publishing houses go crazy and they know they can sell a lot of books because some guy writes a new book about how this is fulfilling the end times. That's crazy. That's not biblical. We don't go identifying the Antichrist. There's a time coming when he will be revealed and there will be no mistake. So, for entertainment value only, I did look up um, the 10 current contenders for the Antichrist. <laughs> uh, number one on the list, and this is an um, unnamed Christian publication telling us who to be suspicious about right now, who could be the Antichrist. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. He is the founder and leader of the Islamic State. Okay, he's a bad guy. Um, they... Here's the criteria they gave. Well, he's an Assyrian, and the book of Daniel mentions Assyrians. Um, he rejects Yahweh. He has multiple wives. He's rabidly anti-Semitic and anti-Christian. He beheads enemies. He controls ancient Assyria, and he rejects Christ. He's a contender, right? Um, actually, he's not a contender. Uh, Daniel 11.37 is really clear um, that... Um, the Antichrist will have zero desire for women. And you just told me he has multiple wives. At any rate. Alexis Tsipras, he's the prime minister of Greece, contender number two. Barack Obama makes the list at number three. Emmanuel Macron, the Macron, the president of France, makes the list. Just so we realize we're on both sides of politics here, Jared Kushner makes the list. Um, Javier Solana makes the list. He has something to do with NATO. Um, Justin Trudeau uh, makes the list. And if you misspell his name, listen to this carefully. This is literally in this article. If you misspell his name, um, then you can make the numbers of the letters in his name six, six, and six. Justin has six. One of his middle names, Pierre, has six. And if you misspell his last name by leaving off a couple letters, which the French don't pronounce anyway... 666. Also on the list is King Abdullah II, King of Jordan, and then Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey, obviously. Then uh, Vlad, 
makes the list. Vladimir Putin's on there. And then Zoltan Istvan. You knew he was going to make the list just because of his name. He is the founder of the Transhumanist Party. You know what transhumanism is, right? Oh, good. I'm so glad you don't know what that is. That is the intentional self-evolution out of the human race by weird piercings and technological things. He's the guy that implanted a chip in his own wrist. and He's actually a guy, if his first, middle, and last names do have six letters. I mean, and his name's Zoltan. I mean, that's... Anyway, entertainment value only. Put that aside. You, we don't go looking for the Antichrist. What will this one do? Daniel says he will speak out against the Most High. His blasphemies will be audacious. The most audacious that have been seen yet, and there have been many audacious boasts against the one true God throughout human history. We've seen some of those in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar has made some. Belshazzar has made some. This will top them all. Daniel 11.36 tells us the king will do as he pleases, exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will wear down the saints. Daniel told us from the detail of his own vision in verse 21, he will wage war with the saints and he will be able to. That is, he will prevail against them. Listen to Revelation 13, 7. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. He will be able to do whatever he wants on the earth. Here in verse 25, he will wear down the saints of the highest one like the wearing out of garments. That same word is used of the sacks and sandals and wineskins that didn't wear out in the wilderness wanderings. What will it mean to wear them out like old garments, to make life miserable, to break people down through injustice, the seizure of property, tortures, economic persecution? Listen to Revelation 13, he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the freemen and slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. He provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And by the way, you haven't taken the mark of the beast yet in case you were wondering. Again, this can't happen until the revived Roman Empire and this guy's in place but this will be the most difficult time in human history, according to Christ. Listen to Jesus' words about this time in Matthew 24. For then there will be a great tribulation such has not occurred <clears throat> excuse me, since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. This will, according to Revelation 12, be the fiercest persecution Israel has yet faced. And if you've read history, you've read Israel's history, you've read 20th century history, you know the persecutions the nation of Israel has faced. This will be worse. This little horn will bring about the destruction of Jerusalem, according to Daniel 9.26 and Zechariah 14. In fact, Zechariah 13 tells us that two-thirds of Jews on the earth will be wiped out. They will be killed. Additionally, Revelation 12 and 13 tells us that Gentile believers during that time period will be hunted down. God's people will be no match for the beast, his power, his bronze claws and iron teeth, nor will they be any match for Satan who empowers him. 
The angel tells us that he will intend to make alterations in times and in laws. I think he's referring here to the fundamental basics of God's ordering of things. We see hints of that in our own day. I think in times, he may be referring to calendars, and some have said that has to do with holidays. I think it probably has to do with the seven-day week. Um, We kind of have to fill in here, and this is just a a guess on my part, but you know that the seven-day week has no astronomical explanation. There is no good reason for a week to start over after seven days. Nothing in the moon, the stars, or the sun indicates this. Nothing in the seasons indicates this. You can't divide the lunar calendar by seven and come up with an exact number. You can't divide the 365 and a quarter days it takes to make a year into seven. It just doesn't work. Where does the seven-day week come from? Creation week, where God created in six and rested on the seventh and established that as a pattern for mankind, that has been universal in Bible reading cultures and non-Bible reading cultures for all of human history, with a few exceptions. There are a couple of peoples historically that tried to eradicate what they already knew was the seven-day week. The Egyptians tried for a little while. They actually couldn't do it. Uh, The Romans tried for a little while. Nazi Germany tried a five-day week for a little while, and communist Russia tried a 10-day week for a little while. I mean, that makes sense. You can count to 10 on my fingers. But it doesn't seem that anything could eradicate from the human mind the way God has designed a seven-day week. And and I think that's why the text here tells us he will try to alter times. And he will try to alter laws. I I don't think he means um, what laws do we pass by legislative bodies and put on the books. I mean, there's a lot of silly laws that come and go in our day. Uh, I I read a book of some of these laws a number of years ago in Tennessee, I don't know if I should even say it. Well, it's funny. We can laugh at it now. Okay, it's misogynistic. Here's the misogynistic rule of a bygone era. In, in Tennessee, on the books, was a rule that said if a female is driving a car, a man has to be out front and out behind the car with red flags waving warnings. Okay, t- terrible law that says nothing about female ability to drive. I don't know why I brought it up. That's not the kind of laws we're talking about here. I think he's talking about the fundamental order of the way God organizes things. He wants to alter God's order because he thinks he is God. He's putting himself in the place of God and he's rearranging everything. And we have vestiges of that today. We're erasing such obvious realities as gender, right? To to claim that men can and should give birth is probably a... A prefiguring of this kind of unnatural rewriting of God's order. Ridiculous, unimaginable alterations. He will attempt to get rid of every vestige of the memory of God on the earth. And notice again, the text says he will intend. I'm not sure it succeeds, even in that lawless age. But notice they will be given into his hands Verse 20, 25, they, that is the saints, God's people. Again, given by God, this critical word in the book of Daniel, the word given, we saw it three times in the opening chapter. 
that God gave Daniel gifts, that God gave the rulership to Gentile rulers over and over again, God gives. He is the sovereign one, and here, God in his sovereignty is giving his precious people over to persecution under his sovereign plan. This is striking. This is sobering. Maybe this is what troubles Daniel's spirit. Now, this has been true from the beginning of the church. The church was scattered in Acts 8, and the persecution of the church became the fulfillment of the Great Commission. This has been true all through church history, and it will be true even beyond the church under the end of the Great Tribulation. But notice this persecution is limited. Verse 25 tells us it is for a time and times and half a time. I would contend that what Daniel means here is three and a half years. I'll give you seven lines of argument. Time is a singular. Times is a dual word in Aramaic. And then half a time. If you take one plus two plus a half, that equals three and a half. Three and a half times. We discovered in Daniel chapter 4, verse 16, 23, and 25, that times were used there for years. It was seven years that Nebuchadnezzar was under the crazy spell from God. Number three, Daniel 12, 7 uses the phrase time, times, and half a time again, followed by two time frames. The first is 1,290 days, given in verse 11, then 1,335 days, given in verse 12. Both of those are slightly more than three and a half years. Okay, they're not exact, and they're not exact for a reason. There are two lengths, and they're both longer than three and a half years, and that's on purpose, and we'll get to that detail in Daniel chapter 12. That's exciting. Number four, Revelation 11.2 tells us that Jerusalem will be trampled for 42 months. That is three and a half years. The beast, number five, the beast in Revelation 13 is given power for 42 months. That again is three and a half years. Number six, time, times, and half a time, that exact phrase is used in Revelation 12.14, and it equals the 1260 days used in Revelation 12.6. And then seventh, Daniel 9.24 depicts weeks of years, 70 sevens of years. And the last seven or the last week of years is split in half. The last week of years is the era of the little horn, the beast, the Antichrist. And in the middle of that week, that is the middle of a seven-year period, that beast will put a stop to sacrifice in a rebuilt temple. What is the middle of seven years? Three and a half years. I think it's unmistakable that time times and half a time is three and a half years. What will be the activities of the last king of the revived Roman Empire, that man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the beast, the Antichrist? What will he do? He will trample the world, blaspheme God, act like he is God, attempt to change God's order, make war on God's people, and give vent to the last venomous, murderous hatred of Satan, and he will lose. Look at verse 26. The court will sit. The judgment will sit, literally. It's over. And then emphatic destruction. His dominion will be taken away to be annihilated and to be destroyed forever. Uh, these are an emphatic piling up of destruction words to emphasize the finality, the totality, the certainty of this destruction. Satan's phony world ruler will be replaced by the truth, the one who is the truth. 
Messiah on the earth. Look at verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints, literally the people who are the saints of the highest one. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. The rightful king of all kings, listen to this, will give his kingdom to people. His saints, his separated out ones. That is, we belong to Messiah. He conquers and he makes judgment on our behalf and he gives infinitely generously to his people who are united to him in faith. And notice verse 27, his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. What will happen in that kingdom? All the dominions will serve, all the dominions will obey him. This fits the Old Testament and New Testament descriptions of Jesus' kingdom. There will be peoples and nations on the earth, eventually a multitude of believers and unbelievers, but they all will obey him and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And this kingdom will continue, according to Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10, until Satan is released a final time from prison, there is a short-lived uprising against Christ, a final battle, it's not really a battle, Jesus just wins, the final great white throne judgment, followed by the new heavens and new earth. Revelation 21 and 22 then describe the eternal state. So Messiah's reign will have no usurpers, no interruptions. It will transcend the present universe to rule for all of eternity in a new universe, one without war without sin, without pain, without sorrow, ever, ever, ever again. Notice that verse 27 is the beginning of the kingdom of Messiah's reign on the earth. It's not the culmination of it. It is the actual arrival of a physical, personal, terrestrial reign. And it happens after the destruction of the fourth beast, after the judgment against the Antichrist. Listen, friends, these awful things must come first and then Christ's kingdom comes. As you listen to these things, are you troubled? Maybe your heart in its sheath trembling a little? Has the color gone out of your complexion? Are you even now silently pondering what this is all about? What it will be like? Is it hard to understand, hard to get our minds around? Is it, is it difficult to bring Daniel's facts into what we previously understood? Well, listen, you're in good company. Look at verse 28. We join Daniel in this. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, and I kept the matter to myself. We get the impression late in life that Daniel probably doesn't have his friends Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah aren't mentioned. Daniel has been confronted with these terrifying realities, ultimate victory, but a long, terrifying road to get there. He's troubled, lost the complexion in his face. He's internally pondering. What would be the importance of these details? First of all, to the Jewish exiles in Babylon 500 years before Christ. What would they need to know? Why do they need to know all these details about the Antichrist that wouldn't come for millennia? I think they needed to remember that Persian rule was not their ultimate rescue. 
If the Babylonians are overthrown and the Persian Empire takes over and then the Persians give them permission to go back into the land and rebuild the temple and even fund it, that's not Messiah's reign. That's not the land of blessing and promise and it is not repentant and restored Israel that benefits from the promises, spiritual blessings and physical blessings in the Abrahamic, Davidic and New Covenants. It's not it yet. And their hope would certainly not be in Grecian rule, and their hope would not be in Roman rule. And sometimes we think along those lines, right? Is there going to be a better day around the corner with another administration? Or, or if this administration fails and, and we all have to abandon ship, build a new Mayflower and find a new place to colonize, is that going to be better? Not until Christ comes. What, what is the reality the entire world is going to be engulfed in conflict, rebellion against God under the tutelage of the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers and is behind human governance at every turn and in every generation. We don't put our hope here. Our hope's not in government. Our hope is not in elections. Our hope is not in the next empire. Our hope is not in kings until it is the king of kings who reigns on the earth. And that's good news, Messiah's rule. But until then, we will have troubles and it will get worse. And what is our task? To trust the Lord, to take His word at face value, to live for His glory, to populate that future kingdom by proclaiming the truth. What is the importance for us? Well, clearly God thought this was important. Daniel wrote it down. It's important to God that we knew these details. John the Revelator wrote these details down. Paul the Apostle wrote these details down. Jesus himself gave us more details than we covered tonight, Matthew 24 and 25. God has seen fit to disclose to us some, certainly not all, of the details of what will transpire in future world history. In fact, the book of Revelation opens with this encouragement. Blessed are all who read and heed the words of the prophecy of this book. We ought to pay attention to these things. There's always a purpose in God's revealing truth to us. And in revealing eschatological truth, God's purpose is manifold. Peter says we are to be certain kinds of people looking forward to the return of Christ. In other words, there is an ethical import to eschatology. We are to live different. We are to cast our hope not in the temporal things of this world, but in the promises of God to come. Now, that radically affects how we live here and now. We don't build up treasures where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. We store up treasures for ourselves for an age to come. It just means our values are governed by heaven. We recognize what Paul says in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our mortal bodies into conformity with the glory of his body with the power that he has to subdue all things to himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long for that day. We look for your return with eager anticipation. We pray your kingdom come. We long for the day when your will will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. 
And we pray in the meantime to be faithful to you, staying the course, enduring trials and tribulations, knowing that the worst is yet to come for this world, and knowing that our hope, our confidence is in you, the sovereign God of all things. Lord Jesus, you are the lamb who was slain, who by your blood have written into the book of life the names of all those who believe in you. We thank you for your grace and your kindness to forgive us of our sins, knowing that we as humans, sinners, members of this rebellious world, we would be every bit a part of Satan's rebellion against you if you had not rescued us by your grace. Thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.